0: If you have your copy of God's Word, I'd like to encourage you to please open it to the book of 1 Thessalonians. we will be in chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. As you're turning there, I'll give you an update on my daughter, Emma. Uh, she's been doing fairly well, but just continue to be in prayer because over the last week, she's had a few more secretions we're not sure why it may be due just to the heat and the humidity or something in the air so just pray that her breathing will continue to be well and her lungs will stay clear and as always I'm very grateful for your prayers and your support follow with me as I read 1st Thessalonians 4 verses 13 through 18 Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Bow with me in prayer. Gracious Lord, thank you for the truth of your word and the precious promises contained in these few verses. And I pray this morning as we think about your glorious return, as we think about what awaits us, I pray that you would grant us encouragement. For Father, we are in great need of encouragement. These days are difficult. We are hit with news on all sides. And quite frankly, Lord, we're not sure what to believe anymore. But, Father, we cling to the truth of your word that is unchanging. So draw our attention to you and the promise of the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. For in his name we pray. Amen. Since the year of 1955, Dover Air Force Base has served as the point for which soldiers killed in action... Have returned to this country. For over 40 years Robert Bauer has served as one of the full-time morticians on staff there. And you can only imagine in 40 years of serving in that way what he has seen and experienced. Dr. Bauer stated that as difficult as a mortician's job may be, the hardest part has always been ministering to the families. He said it's easier to deal with some of the horrific scenes that he has witnessed in the mortuary room than dealing with the grief of some families but with over 40 years he said that he has noticed something he has noticed that not all grief is created equal he said and I quote when a family comes in here with some kind of faith some belief in god they hold up so much better than someone who has nothing to hold on to, we can echo those sim- sentiments. For we know that Christianity teaches life after death. But this morning, based upon this text, I want to remind you that not only do we believe in life after death, but the Christian hope is in something far greater than just an existence in heaven. We believe clearly that the Lord Jesus Christ will return physically to establish his kingdom on this earth. We believe that he will return to right the wrongs of this planet. We believe that he will return and eradicate disease, and he will return to judge both the living and the dead. This belief is summarized in one of the oldest statements of faith, the Apostles' Creed. Now, Creed's are not on par with Scripture, however, creeds do give a succinct summary of Christian belief. The latter part of the Apostles' Creed states this, He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence He shall come to judge the quick and the dead. We believe in the Holy Ghost. We believe in a holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The return of Jesus Christ and the resurrection of the dead is a fundamental belief of the Christian faith. In fact, Paul writes in chapter 4, verse 13 that he does not want believers to be uninformed about this. The King James Version it renders this in a more blunt fashion where it says we would not have you be ignorant, brothers, of these things. That statement shows the importance of this doctrine. The return of Jesus Christ is not to be ignored because it deals, first of all, with what happens to those who have died in the faith. And then, of course, it deals with those who will be living when Jesus returns. My fear is that there are many who shy away from thinking about this doctrine for one of two reasons. Many shy away from talking about it because it's been overly complicated and it's something they can't understand with lots of charts and diagrams and it's confusing. So they rather just say, I just don't want, I just believe it will all pan out in the end. Others don't talk about the return of Jesus Christ because of a mistaken view that it has no real implications for this world. Scripture argues differently. The believers at Thessalonica were struggling because they had expected Jesus to return quickly, imminently. But he hadn't. And now members of this congregation are starting to die. So the questions began to arise in their minds. Well, Jesus hasn't returned. So what happens to those who have died? What happens to those who die before Jesus comes back? Will they somehow lose out in what happens when Jesus returns. So Paul writes to encourage them and us, by the way, with the truth of the return of Jesus Christ. For the next three Sundays, we're going to be taking a look at this topic because that's what the Scripture deals with. In fact, you'll see this. To This morning, we're looking at verses 13 through 18, the encouragement that is gained from reflecting and believing in His return. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 3 deal with the timing of his return. We'll look at that next week. And then verses 4 through 11 of chapter 5 talk about what does it mean as believers to live in the light of his return. What are the real world implications of this? And more than anything in these next three weeks, I want us to recognize that rather than causing fear or frustration, the second coming of Jesus Christ should give us hope. encouragement in our lives now Paul begins in verse 14 with a very clear statement about the basis of our hope the basis for our encouragement is the resurrection of Jesus Christ now he states very clearly the answer to the question that the Thessalonians have since we believe that Jesus died and rose again so in other words his resurrection That just as he died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, it's amazing to me that Paul emphasizes the role of God in this. Notice the the prepositions that are found in this verse. Through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, I love that the way the phrase with him, is a little bit ambiguous as if it's reference to God or Jesus. So if you were to ask me, does with him, God will bring with him, refer to Jesus or God, my answer would be yes. For Jesus indeed is God. And Paul is emphasizing that God is faithful in bringing back those who have passed away in the faith through Jesus. Now the phrase asleep, those who have fallen asleep, occurs twice in this passage. Now the phrase asleep is a way of referring to the temporary nature of death for the Christian. The Bible teaches that upon death, the spirit of the believer goes to be with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5.8 is very clear in this. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So what that means is that there is a conscious, uninterrupted fellowship between the believer and the Lord. A fellowship that not even death can interrupt. We have a relationship with the Lord that continues. So at the moment of death, the spirit goes and is in the presence of the Lord Jesus with him, knowing him, very much alive. The phrase asleep here refers to the body. The body is asleep. In fact, John Stott, a theologian who passed away a few years ago, put it like this. He said, It is then because a human corpse lies in the grave still, as it were resting, and awaiting resurrection, that it is appropriate to call death sleep. And a graveyard, a cemetery, a sleeping place. Cemetery literally means sleeping place cemeteries are dormitories for the dead. So this hope that he looks at is this, not that our spirit is just in heaven forever with no physical body. That's what the Apostle Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says we don't want to be unclothed. He said the idea of having a disembodied spirit in the presence of Jesus forever is like being naked. He said that's not good. We want to be clothed with a resurrected body. In fact, in that passage, the word house refers to a resurrected body. So the spirit is with the Lord. The body is asleep in the ground awaiting the resurrection of the dead when it will rise in newness of life. And those who have died will receive new bodies. The basis for this belief is nothing less than the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In fact, that's where we go back to what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And Paul says not only is it the linchpin of our faith, it is the cornerstone of our belief in the resurrection of the physical body body. Jesus did not come from the grave as a spirit. He came forth bodily and physically in a resurrected body. In fact, Jesus alluded to this hope in John 14, 19. He said, yet a little while and the world will see me me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. In other words, because I am resurrected from the dead and I am alive, you too will one day be resurrected from the dead and be alive. So because Jesus rose from the dead, those who die in Christ will rise also. That's the basis for our encouragement. But there's also great encouragement for those who are living when Jesus returns. This is found in verses 15 through 17. Verse 15 begins by reminding us that those who have died, in fact, will receive, as it were, an honored place in receiving their resurrected bodies first. Look at verse 15. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So those who have died will receive a resurrected body first. It's almost as if it's an honor to say they have been waiting for this in the presence of the Lord. So at the return of Christ, they receive this. Then verses 16 through 17 address the return of Jesus and what it means for those who are living when he returns. Notice verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven, he will return. I would remind you in the book of Acts, it says that Jesus ascended, and as he is ascending, the disciples are standing there looking, and when he had said these things, they were looking on, and he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. I don't think that was any white nemocumulus cloud that we see in the sky. I think that was the glory of God cloud throughout the scripture often refers to the presence of God in theophany whether it be at Sinai where the cloud descends whether it be at the temple in first kings eight where the Shekinah cloud fills the temple of God or whether it's on the mount of transfiguration and the cloud descended it seems that this is not just referring to this earthly cloud but the glory of God received him and took him out of their sight and while they were gazing to heaven as he went behold two men stood by them in white white robes and said men of Galilee Why do you stand looking into the heavens? Now look at this glorious promise. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. He will return physically descending from heaven bodily, flesh and blood, not as a spirit. And notice how it is described. He will descend from heaven with a cry of command. This is a military word. It's a phrase that speaks of eliciting immediate action. It's a command that is given and you don't wait. And I believe that this command that Jesus will descend with is the command for the dead to rise and for the church to join him. In fact, in John chapter 5, Jesus said these words, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. You see little images of this, not images, but you see this truth as Jesus walked the earth when he commanded the dead to rise. And every time there was no debate, there was no waiting, the dead rose. And so I think here it is speaking of that cry of command, When Jesus says to all the dead in Christ, arise, there'll be no waiting. The resurrection will occur. And as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians, that which is mortal will be swallowed up in immortal. That is corruptible. We swallowed up in incorruption. Now notice this cry of command is also accompanied with the voice of an archangel. Archangels are not mentioned frequently in the scripture. In fact, only here and in the book of Jude where it's referenced to to Michael. It's not as clear as what the voice of the archangel is about other than it fits with the description Jesus gave of his return in Matthew chapter 24 where he spoke of the angels gathering the elect from all over the world. So to me it would seem that this command and the voice of the archangel will be accompanied in this command. Notice what the text says next with the sound of the trumpet of God. Now in the Old Testament the trumpet of God is is made mention of frequently. It's a reference, for example, in Isaiah twenty-seven thirteen, of the trumpet of God sounding and bringing his people home from foreign lands, almost like a, an old-fashioned dinner bell ringing and everybody comes. In Joel 2, 1, the trumpet of God signals the day of judgment. It is here that I want to insert a change that took place in my theology over the last several years. Because this change in my understanding of the return of Christ revolves around the sound of the trumpet of God. Like many of you, I grew up being taught that there would be a pre-tribulation rapture. What that means is the belief that Jesus will secretly return and gather the church unto himself. and The dead will rise and be taken away from the earth. And then, at that moment, there will be seven years of great tribulation that erupt across the world. Then, at the end of that seven years, the second coming happens. In fact, many say the second coming comes in two parts. Part one of the second coming is the rapture, where Jesus is not seen visibly by the world, but he takes the church out and the dead in Christ rise. And then part two happens seven years later, the actual second coming of Jesus. What I have found is that there is no clear teaching of that in the scripture. The Bible teaches one return of Jesus. And looking at this text about the trumpet of God is one of the reasons that I changed my belief that Jesus will return one time. Now let me give you some evidence for why I changed my thinking so you can mull this over yourself. Look, for example, at 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Paul's talking there about what he described in 1 Thessalonians 4. At the last trumpet, Jesus returns, the dead in Christ rise, and we join them in resurrected bodies. But now notice what he says here. At the last trumpet. Jesus returns, the trumpet sounds, and the dead rise. Now, as I thought about that phrase, the last trumpet also begin looking in Revelation chapter 11, where it speaks about these seven trumpets. And it says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So it seems that Revelation 11 says that when the last trumpet, because this is the final trumpet that sounds, it ushers in the kingdom of God to this world, the kingdom of Christ, and he reigns forever. Now, for those who believe that Jesus will come with the trumpet and the rapture of the church away and then return with a trumpet blast to establish his kingdom at the end of the tribulation, how can there be two last trumpets? Because if the trumpet sounds before the tribulation and we rise to meet him and are taken away, that means when he comes again at the end of the tribulation, there will be no trumpet blast. Now, you may think, Pastor, why are you getting hung up on trumpet blast? It's because the Scripture says at the last, trumpet. The dead in Christ will rise. Another reason that I changed my view is the phrase that you find where he says in verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. That phrase, to meet in the air, is one Greek word, parousia. What it means is that we who are alive will join with those who are resurrected from the dead to meet the Lord in the air. Now, as I mentioned earlier, some believe and teach that those that are dead that are resurrected and those who are taken up meet the Lord in the air and are taken away to be with Christ for seven years before returning to the earth. But notice that that is not what this passage says. We will always be with the Lord. It doesn't identify with whether it's taken away to heaven or here on the earth. So what happens when we meet Jesus in the air? The key is that one word, parousia, found to meet the Lord in the air. That word is used in Greek antiquity, in the time of Paul, to refer to a meeting that would happen whenever Caesar would visit a city. When Caesar would visit a city, the leading dignitaries of that city would come out of the city, meet Caesar, join his entourage, and then march with him back into the city. To say that we are on Caesar's side. We are with him as he comes to, to reign over us. So get that imagery. They would come out, meet him, join him, and then come with him into the city. This idea is also expressed with what Paul wrote in Acts 28. As Paul is approaching Rome, he says, The brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. This is describing exactly what I just mentioned. These people came out to meet Paul, joined him, and then continued the journey with him into the city. And by the way, this same imagery is used in a Jewish wedding because as the bridegroom started to approach the banquet hall, the members of the bridal party would go out, meet the groom, join with him, and walk with him back into the bridal hall. So I believe that this is teaching that the dead in Christ will rise first in resurrected bodies. We will join them in the air where we are transformed we will meet Jesus and we will come with him as he establishes his kingdom as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and we will be with him forever just like the text says. So, Pastor, are you saying that we will go through the tribulation? Yes. In fact, that's another reason why I changed my view of a pre-tribulation rapture. First, I could find no precedent in the scripture where God absolutely removed his people from suffering. You'll find ample examples where he went through it with them, where at times he even protected them, but nowhere did he remove them. Jesus also taught that we should expect to be persecuted. And nowhere do I find an asterisk in what Jesus said where he said, Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. As they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Asterisk, except for the church, the last times, they'll be free from persecution. And in fact, this idea of being removed from the great tribulation and persecution, I think, is something we read through Western eyes who have been pretty much tribulation-free. When we step back and we begin reading and hearing the testimony of brothers and sisters around the world, we will recognize tribulations already occurring. You recognize that even now we have brothers and sisters who have lost everything because they followed Jesus. We have brothers and sisters around the world who know that if they are found to be Christians, they will be executed. And if you were to go to them and say, you know, there's a great tribulation coming, they would more likely look at you and say, what do you mean coming? It's already here. That's why we need this encouragement, this reminder that our faith is not in vain. And whatever we suffer because of our faith in Christ, he is faithful and he will return and he will set things right. Now, I know that in preaching this message, some of you may be surprised by my change in belief, and that is okay. I'll be glad afterward to discuss this with you and explain more. In case you're doubting, I do believe in the physical body return of Christ, without a doubt. But rather than get caught up in maybe some of these disagreements, I want to give you three takeaways from this. First is this. We have hope in the face of death. Don't lose that hope. About three weeks ago, Emma was doing well and I arranged to take a day and travel to my hometown of Athens. I wanted to go to visit my dad's lone remaining sister and to visit mom and dad's grave because I had not been there since the summer of 2016. So I went and I spent about 30 minutes at their grave. And I wept because I missed them. But I could also say, I can't wait to see you again. We'll be rejoined and reunited. Notice the very beginning of this. Paul says, We don't want you to grieve like those who have no hope. For the pagan, there's no hope. Death is it, period. End of story. For us, it's not. If anything, death of our beloved that are in Christ, it's a parenthesis where we just are missing being with them for a few moments. We have hope that the non-believer does not have. Also this, with my understanding, we are all leading citizens in the kingdom of God. This is based upon that word parousia that I pointed out in verse 17, to meet the Lord. It was the leading citizens that came to meet Caesar. Your regular, ordinary, average Joe was just left there in the city to watch the parade. But the leading citizens got to come in with Caesar. Isn't it good to know that we who are alive and those who have died in the Lord, we are leading citizens of the kingdom? 1985, President Reagan visited my hometown. Gave a speech on the courthouse steps of McMinn County. My dad was involved in government in our county at that time, and he would come home laughing about how county leaders were falling all over themselves to try to have a seat on the podium where President Reagan was going to be speaking. Church, we have a seat on the podium. (laughs) We're leading citizens, none that are second class. We will be with Jesus when he comes triumphantly, and we are a part of that. We have a place. And finally, this great hope, when Jesus comes, he will set things right. I don't know about you, but I am weary. I'm weary of this world. The pain, the suffering... And to know that when he comes, he will set wrongs right. This world will be restored to how God intended it. And, as I alluded to earlier, he will judge the living and the dead. Let's remember that. I find myself often using the great work by J.R.R. Tolkien as an illustration. The Fellowship of the Ring is really, in many ways, a veiled reference to the Christian faith. At the end of the third book in that trilogy, the return of the king, Aragorn, the rightful king, is returning to his city, Tirith. And as he enters the city for the first time as the king, the stewards begin to proclaim his royal pedigree. Here is Aragorn, son of Erathor, and chieftain of the Dunedain of Arnor, captain of the host of the west, bearer of the star of the north, welder of the sword reforged, victorious in battle, whose hand brings healing, the Elfstone, stone, of the land of Vandil, Ilsildar's son, Elendil's son of Númenor. Now, all the nerds in our congregation are very excited right now. That's fiction. Can you imagine what will be proclaimed when our Lord returns? Could you hear the archangel crying out, Here is Jesus the Christ, the second Adam, the bright and morning star, the first and the last, victorious in battle, whose hands bring healing, mighty second person of the Trinity, son of David, son of man, word of God incarnate, the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of peace, king of kings, and lord of lords, that all bow down and worship. That is our God, and he is coming back. Would you bow with me in prayer? Gracious Lord, I thank you for the true promise that you have given us that you will return. And Lord, until that day, I pray that we will find the encouragement that you promise in your word. That we will not grow weary of doing good, but that we will continue to press on, whether it be through trials and tribulations. Whether it be through crisis and difficult circumstances, Father, help us stand firm for we know you will one day set things right. So, Father, this is the promise we stand upon. Grant us grace and power in the name of Jesus. Amen.